Well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We'll be continuing in our series through the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Matthew chapter 6. And last week, we heard how Jesus addressed the hypocritical religion of the Pharisees in contrast to the humble religion of his disciples, right? In the verses surrounding our text for this morning, we saw Jesus address the giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting, and how the Pharisees would do those things to get man's praise. And in the midst of this discussion about hypocritical and humble religion, Jesus gives special attention to one of the most important elements of the Christian life and of our religious practice, we could say, as Christians. Prayer. Prayer. A Christian who does not pray is, frankly, not a Christian at all. And we'll be spending two weeks uh, in this section of the Lord's Prayer uh, this morning and next Sunday. Now, last year, some of you may remember, some of you were not here, uh, we spent about two months doing a dedicated series on prayer. We looked at what prayer is. We looked at um, at Christ's role as high priest in prayer, the Trinitarian nature of prayer, and we looked at the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to be reusing some of that material in these sermons over the next two weeks. But if you're looking for a more in-depth treatment on prayer, you can find those online uh, on the Sermon Vault on our website, or if you're hip and trendy and listen to podcasts, uh, we do put our, our uh, sermons on the podcast feed as well, so you can find those there. Let's read our text for this morning. The Lord's Prayer will be starting in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we'll continue to the next Three petitions next Sunday. Would you join me in prayer as we come to God's Word? Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the Scriptures. Because as my brother Curtis alluded, what we think is far less important than what your Word says. And Lord, we are here to hear what your Word says, to receive the teaching of Christ Himself, to be changed by it. And Lord, we pray for your help. That as we hear Jesus teach us how to pray, that you would help us change the way that we pray. That it may honor you more and reflect the model Jesus gives us here. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to proclaim the words of Christ faithfully, clearly, and helpfully to your people by your Spirit's power. Now please, Lord, glorify yourself today. May your will be done. In your name, amen. Amen. We have four points this morning as we look at our text. Uh, the first point is going to be don't, be don't pray empty prayers. Don't pray empty prayers, verses 7 and 8. And we'll see Christ instruct us to pray for God's worship in verse 9. In verse 10a, pray for God's kingdom. And finally, pray for God's will. Those are our points for this morning. Now, as we look at this first point, don't pray empty prayers, verses 7 and 8 form something of an introduction to the rest of the Lord's Prayer. Right? They kind of set the stage for this larger discussion about prayer that is to come. Now, really, Jesus starts his discussion on prayer in verse 5, but he changes focus from the hypocritical act of the Pharisee to the superstitious act of the Gentiles. The focus, in other words, shifts from getting attention from man to getting attention from God. 
Now, Jesus tells us in verse 7 to avoid heaping up phrases like the Gentiles do when we pray. You see, in Jesus' day, it was common practice for the Gentiles to repeat the name of a deity over and over and over and over like a mantra or to have a particular phrase that they might say again and again and again. It was really nothing more than vain repetition. Ironically, of course, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer and some have a tendency to turn the Lord's Prayer into such an empty phrase when it is recited without thinking. Right? But as Jesus will show us in a few verses, this kind of babbling prayer, these empty phrases, devoid of any real thought, uh, devoid of any real intention from the heart, is not true prayer at all. So Jesus tells us implicitly that we should be very thoughtful about what we pray, not just repeating something mindlessly, but our, our mind and our heart should be engaged in our prayers. But Jesus, before he moves on to the Lord's Prayer, makes another important point, really about the massive understanding that, uh, or the massive role that our understanding of who God is plays in the way that we pray. How we understand God to be and who he is directly impacts the way that we speak to him in prayer. You see, the reason that the Gentiles would list out these empty phrases and vain repetitions was because they thought they could be heard by their deities because of their many words, right? That's what Jesus tells us in verse 7. Uh, the Gentiles had a certain understanding of who their deity was that led them to the conclusion that the more words I say, the more I will be heard. It was a, a, an issue of quality over quantity, you could say. Now, the ancient civilizations had a very different view of God than Christianity or than Judaism did. Uh, the Greeks and Romans especially had humanistic views of God. What I mean when I say that is the deities of, of Greece and Rome were really just magnified people with special powers. Zeus, right, Ares, right, we, we, we take your pick. They're just people with powers. They were dominated by lust, jealousy, anger, greed, by their passions. They were really just big people, sinful big people who could throw lightning bolts. Um, accordingly, the Greek gods were not all-powerful. They were not all present. They were not all knowing. They were extremely limited beings in that regard, just like you and I are. So to the Gentile, the question was, how do I get my limited deity's attention? Right? They don't even know I exist down here. How do I get their attention? That was the question. And they would use the uh, tactics employed by my two-year-old repeating the same phrase louder and louder and louder until you get a response, right? That's what they would do. As Jesus says, they thought they would be heard by their many words. They thought their God would listen to them if they could just get their attention. The Gentiles had a very, very small view of God, and it was a false view of God as well. And a small view of God leads to a distorted view of prayer, in which God is like a genie, that can be persuaded if you just pray enough and use the right words enough and just say the prayer enough times, right, then God will he'll pay attention and he'll, he'll answer. But Jesus tells us, verse 8, this is not the view of God nor the view of prayer that his disciples are to have at all. We should not approach God in the same way that the Gentiles did. And before Jesus gives us the model of prayer, the Lord's Prayer, he speaks to the importance of having right theology, of knowing what is true about God, of having a big view of God. 
As we see at the beginning of verse 8, Jesus tells us, don't be like the Gentiles, and then he gives us the theological reason why. Don't be like them because, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The reason that we don't need to pray God's name over and over and over and over mindlessly, the reason we don't need to try to impress God with how loudly or fancifully or repetitively we can pray is simple. Our God knows everything. He knows everything. He knows what you need before you ask him. Um, In fact, he knows what you need before you do. Right? That's very different than the, the Gentile view of God, he is the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God who knows all things and sees all things and can give all things. Here's what that means for your prayers if you're a Christian. First, you don't need to get God's attention. You don't need to tug on his sleeve until he bends over to say, yeah, what's up? If you are in Christ, then the Father is working all things together for your good and his glory. Romans 8.28 That means the Father is already aware of your situation and your needs, right? That's the second thing. He's already aware of what you need before you ask. And he knows the best solution to that need. You and I rarely do. And third, since your Father in heaven loves you and desires what is good for you, well, he is eager to grant your requests according to his good and perfect will. Right? He doesn't need to be convinced by repetitious prayer. He doesn't need to be persuaded by how, um, how well or or, you know, fancifully we can pray to do something for us if you're a Christian. He is glad as your Heavenly Father to give you what is good for you according to His perfect will. Now, sometimes, you know, in Christianity, we, we wow, theology is not really that important or, you know, that's just fancy doctrine. That doesn't really affect the, the way that I live as a Christian, right? So what? What does that matter for me? But with this big view of God... Right? Affecting prayer. If you, if you think theology doesn't matter, if you think that deep truth about God has no impact on daily life, Jesus is disagreeing here. He's saying, think again. How you understand God has a direct impact on how you pray. There's a reason that Jesus reminds us of this, of who God is. Jesus is giving us a theology lesson before he teaches us how to pray. It's very important. So with this big view of God in mind, with a little theology lesson that our God is all-powerful, all-present, that he knows our needs even before we do and can grant those needs better than we can, we come to the Lord's Prayer itself in verse 9. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at the first half of the Lord's Prayer. Um, The Lord's Prayer is broken up into six petitions, um, generally speaking, right? Six petitions, and we're going to be looking at the first three today and the next three next Sunday. And the first half of the Lord's Prayer, divided between verse 9 and 10, really deals with God's glory and God's purposes. God's glory and God's purposes. It is right and good that Jesus places these petitions first in the Lord's Prayer. Because God's glory and praise is a first priority, even before our own needs. So before we get into these points, we need to kind of address the issue of how do we use the Lord's Prayer? Right? Is, it, is it something that we should recite? Is it something that we should ignore? What do we do with the Lord's Prayer? Some of you may be very familiar with the Lord's Prayer from reciting it verbatim uh, as a kind of ritual for many years. You may come from a, a very traditional or liturgical background where that was done. And so you may be able to recite it like that. 
Some of you may not know the Lord's Prayer at all, right? If, I, if, if we did a pop quiz, right, some of you may not know how the Lord's Prayer begins. I don't think either of these reflect Jesus' intention in giving us the Lord's Prayer, right? In, in telling his disciples, pray then like this. We want to be in the middle here. Now, it's interesting because in Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells the disciples to pray this way, verse 9. Well, in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, when you pray, say this, and then lists out the Lord's Prayer. Now, Jesus, at the very least, seems to be telling us that the topics, the things outlined in the Lord's Prayer, are the topics we should be praying about. That's pretty clear. At the same time, Jesus does seem to suggest that it is possible to pray the Lord's Prayer word for word and mean it, right? Not to treat it like an empty phrase. You could pray this verbatim and be fully engaged and sincere in your prayer. These are simple words, but they are amazingly deep. But I am convinced that it seems best to view the Lord's Prayer not as a script, nor as irrelevant, but as a pattern for prayer. As a pattern for prayer. What I mean when I say that, Um, You know, my mom, when we were little, she used to make costumes and clothes for us. And she had this drawer in her sewing room full of patterns, right? It was these little envelopes with patterns in them, uh, I think on transparency paper or something like that. Now, you could choose whatever color fabric, whatever texture fabric, whatever kind of fabric you wanted to use underneath that pattern. The pattern was a guideline for how to cut out the shapes and put together the outfit. Now, in the, in the Lord's Prayer, I think it's functioning in a similar way. Jesus says you should be praying regarding these things. Now, of course, whatever you have going on in your life or whatever you have going on in your life or whatever I have going on in my life is going to shape the specifics of what we're praying for. But these are the big arenas that our prayer should live in. Right? These are the patterned topics that make for a robust Christian prayer life. Does that make sense? So we're going to be approaching the Lord's Prayer that way, not as a script, not as irrelevant, but as a pattern. So let's get into the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, starting with verse 9. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. The first thing Jesus tells us to pray for is God's worship. God's worship. Verse 9. Now, if you were to meet the president or perhaps a king from another nation, what would be the first thing that you might say? And, of course, that probably depends on what country they are the president or king of. Would it be something funny, something dignified, something irreverent, something serious, something informal, something honoring the position of the one you were speaking to? Well, in this first petition of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus reminds us that we cannot begin prayer without recognizing the greatness of the one that we are approaching in prayer. And this leads to worship. And this is a reflection of of what we saw in verse 8. First, Jesus instructs us to recognize God's position in our prayers. He is our Father in heaven. He is our Father in heaven. We must begin our prayers in conscious awareness that God is our Father, that we have a new relationship to Him. It is that of a Father. And this is, of course, the result of Christ's work for us. We were born hostile to God, dead in our sins and trespasses, members of Satan's family, not God's. But in Christ, we've been adopted, reconciled to God, and forgiven of our sins so that we might have a new relationship with Him, not as an enemy, not as a a wrathful judge of our sins, 
but as our Father. And we can call Him that, Father. And it's not just a name, but it really is the nature of our relationship with Him. As our Father, He is fully able and delights to provide for His children. He's fully willing and eager to do so because He loves us. He loves His children with a steadfast and everlasting love. Right? God's not like us where we may sometimes uh, do what's more convenient for us than what's best for our kids, right? No, God always does what is perfectly good. So when we address God in prayer, we're really starting with the gospel. We're starting by remembering our new relationship to this great God that Jesus has procured for us. And this is a sweet thing, isn't it? Sometimes we, we use that phrase and it just, it just rolls off our lips and we don't think about it. But to be able to call the God who would have been righteous to send us to hell, Father, is quite remarkable. That is quite sweet, is it not? It is a beautiful thing when we acknowledge that we have a new relationship with God. And that because of that, we can worship Him rightly. And this new knowledge leads us to the first real petition of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And Jesus reminds us of God's priority and praise. Now, we don't really use the word hallow very much anymore. It's, it's probably not one that you have used casually in conversation. It's not part of modern English, right? And, and most of our modern translations use it because many people have learned the Lord's Prayer from the King James translation. But what does it mean to hallow God's name? It really means, may your name be kept holy. Right? That's what it means. May your name be kept holy. This is a petition of the Lord's Prayer directly related to the worship and reverence of God. Now, God is jealous for His name. He is jealous for His name. Consider the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Exodus 27. Why is God so concerned about his name? Well, it's not just a label. It doesn't just mark his, his place at the table. It's directly associated with his person and his character. His name is his reputation. And his reputation matters, doesn't it? The Bible speaks over and over about the holiness of God's name. And the Psalms speak of praising God's holy name. And the prophets speak of how Israel and her sinfulness profaned God's holy name. Essentially, to hallow God's name doesn't mean to just treat his name like a special word. It means far more than that. It means to revere God himself as holy and to worship him accordingly. Psalm, or excuse me, as 1 Chronicles 16.29 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now Jesus is instructing here in this phrase, in this petition, to revere God as holy and to pray that others would do so too. This is the heart of worship. It's not about an experience. It's not about an emotional feeling. It is about revering God as holy. Jesus is instructing for us to pray that God might be worshipped according to his holy name. And there's at least three directions this takes our prayers. I'm sure there's more. But there's at least three big ones. Right? The first is regarding our own hearts. 
We should be praying that God helps us to live in a way that hallows His name. To live in a way that reflects the holiness of who He is, that brings glory and honor to Him. In fact, to pray, hallowed be your name, and then to live a careless life, is the very definition of what it means to take His name in vain. So we must pray for His help in honoring His name as holy. This means we must pray for His help in knowing Him more rightly according to His Word. Again, theology matters because it informs our worship. Men, I want to encourage you, come to the men's study and grow in your knowledge of God. Theology matters. As we grow in our knowledge of Him, we are able to ascribe more glory to Him in His various attributes. We should be praying for God to help us glorify Him in any number of situations we might face. So, Do you pray for God's help in worshiping Him rightly and glorifying His name? Father, help me to glorify Your name as I go into this conversation. Help me to glorify Your name as I start this new job. Help me to glorify Your name while I'm driving home from work today, whatever it might be. First direction is our own hearts. The second is for the church. We should not only be praying for ourselves, of course, but for our brothers and sisters, for the local church, for the universal church, that God's people might revere Him with worshipful hearts. We should pray that the church at large and locally would be faithful to the Scriptures, that the church would have a, a high view of God, as high as possible, and that our focus and the focus of our brothers and sisters would be the glory of God above all do you pray for the church, that it would grow in its zeal and love and awe of God, that it would grow in its reverence for God? The third direction is the world. We should be praying what Psalm 72, 14 says, May the whole earth be filled with His glory. And we should pray for those who do not glorify God, who do not revere His name as holy, that they would do so, that they would turn to worship the true and living God. Do we pray that the whole earth might know God's glory? And this first petition, hallowed be your name, really sets the stage for the rest of the Lord's Prayer because it shows us what the priority of our prayer should be, the glory and praise of God. A number of different commentators note that this first petition is what the others go back to. All the other petitions are the ways that God glorifies himself. Ultimately, we need to remember that God's glory is the greatest good and really the greatest thing that we can seek in prayer. All of our requests and needs must be subservient to God's own glory. And it's good to begin our prayers with worship, focusing our minds and our hearts on God as our Father, who is holy and good, who is great and glorious. Our prayers must be worshipful, starting with God's holiness and the holiness of His name. Well, the second petition we see in the Lord's Prayer is to pray for the kingdom of God. To pray for the kingdom of God, verse 10. Jesus says next, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Again, this is God-focused. It's all about the advance of God's kingdom, not ours. Now, <clears throat> it should not be a surprise that we find this in the Lord's Prayer. Because the Sermon on the Mount, and really the entire Gospel of Matthew, is about the kingdom of God. Theologians go back and forth about exactly what the kingdom of God is. How do we define that? What's the nature of it? And there's a lot that could be said on that, but for the purpose of today's sermon, we're going to boil it down to be short and sweet. The kingdom of God is God's reign over God's people. 
God's reign over God's people, R-E-I-G-N, right? His reign is a king over his people. So when we pray your kingdom come, we're really praying for God's kingdom, his reign to be established over his people. We're praying for the advance of his kingdom. But this fans out in a couple different ways. First, we are to pray for the advance of the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel and the salvation that the gospel brings. Now, Paul captures this beautifully in Colossians uh, chapter 1. Turn there briefly with me. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 5. <clears throat> Paul is thanking God for the Colossians and sharing with them some of the things that he prays for. But Paul here describes the effect of the gospel. What he says is this, Of this, meaning the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, and indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Since the day you heard it, uh, excuse me, as it does also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel does something as it is proclaimed, as it goes out. It bears fruit as God saves people through the preaching of the gospel, as he grants them faith to believe, to trust Christ, to repent. And, and when a person believes the gospel, what happens? There is a radical change in the kingdom that they belong to. Their citizenship completely changes. I look down a few more verses at verse 13. Here's what Paul says has happened to the Colossians because of their belief in the gospel. And this applies to all Christians. He has delivered us, meaning God has delivered us, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's, that's just awesome. What God has done, right? When a person trusts Christ alone, when they believe the gospel, they are, they are transformed, they are changed from being a citizen of Satan's kingdom to a citizen of Christ's kingdom. And so the kingdom that they are concerned about also must change. When we pray for your kingdom come, well, really, we're praying for the progress of the gospel. Praying for the salvation of the lost, for God to continue gathering in His people. Now, practically, this means praying for the salvation of people that you may know. It means praying that God would strengthen and help those missionaries and evangelists, both here and abroad. Right? It's easy to forget. I do sometimes, because they're so far away. But we should be diligent in praying for their labors. Right? We should be diligent in praying for the lost to come hear the gospel here, and for opportunities individually to share Christ. And we should be praying for other local churches as well to be right, fruitful in preaching Christ. And these are just some of the things where we can pray for as we ask God, your kingdom come. Now, of course, the kingdom of God is fully consummated, not now, but at the return of Christ. Um, flip over all the way to the end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. I promise this will not be a crazy eschatology uh, discussion here. 
Revelation chapter 11. John is describing the seventh trumpet here. Uh, the seventh trumpet signals the visible and triumphant return of Christ, the second coming. And look at what the heavenly voices declare in conjunction with Jesus' return, starting in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Quite a picture, quite a scene. But notice what is proclaimed here. The kingdoms of the world which have raised themselves up in objection to Christ have been put down forever. And Christ's kingdom is inaugurated once and for all. As they say, the kingdom of our world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So when we pray for the kingdom of God to come, we are also praying for the return of Christ. We're, return, we're, we're praying for Christ to return, to reign and rule over all things, to really echo the words of John at the end of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. But notice what else is entailed here in the coming of God's kingdom. It's the defeat of evil. Right? That's also implicit in this text. The kingdom of the world, the nations that raged, they've all been done away with. And all that is left is the perfect righteousness of Jesus' kingdom. As we pray for God's kingdom to advance through the preaching of the gospel, as we pray for the return of Christ, we're also praying for the ultimate and just judgment of God as well over the kingdom of darkness and that it would be pushed back even before the return of Christ. Have you ever read those psalms in the Bible where David seems to be asking God to destroy his enemies? Right? What do we do with those as Christians? Well, this is where they fit. We call those imprecatory prayers. Right? This is where they fit. Lord, push back on evil. Protect your people. Protect the innocent. Stop the wrongdoer. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are also praying that evil would be thwarted as well. And we see here that praying for God's kingdom is not primarily for our benefit, not primarily for our gain, but again, for God's glory. It is His kingdom that we should be seeking, not ours. We cannot bring God's kingdom into the world. That's not our, that's not our job. We preach the gospel, God advances His kingdom. And we are to pray for him to do that very thing, that he might be glorified. And finally, the last petition here Jesus gives us in this first half of the Lord's Prayer, we're to pray for the will of God. We're to pray for the will of God. This is the second half of verse 10. Jesus says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this third position, uh, petition, excuse me, again focused on God's glory. 
is that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, but why would we pray this? Why would we pray this? Doesn't God already know his will? Isn't he going to do what he's going to do? Why would we pray this? Well, there's two senses of God's will that we find in the Bible. Uh, there's God's secret will and God's revealed will. Now, this is kind of encapsulated for us in verses like Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children that we may do all the words of his law. Now, God's secret will is that which he has decreed. Everything that comes to pass, he has not revealed these things to us. Right? He, he's given us the big picture of redemptive history, but he hasn't told us why that guy did this thing to you. He hasn't told you what's going to happen tomorrow and the significance of that in his plan for your life. We don't have that information. Sometimes he gives us little glimpses down the road, but we really don't know God's secret will. We don't know his sovereign plan down to the details. Now, we can, again, in retrospect, glean some things, but we don't know God's decrees. That is his hidden and secret will. Only he knows this. Now, not everything that happens in God's decree is directly pleasing to him in the sense that he condones it. God does not take pleasure in the suffering that a car crash produces, but he is uh, overjoyed at the sanctification that he works in the life of an individual as a result of that suffering. Now, of course, we do know some things about the future, of course, Jesus' return, our glorification, but we don't know much more than that. Now, God's revealed will, on the other hand, is that which he has made known to us in Scripture, those things clearly written down in the Bible. Uh, this is also called God's preceptive will because it concerns his precepts, his commands. Right? This is what God's revelation in the Scriptures tells us we should do. For example, it is God's will that we love one another. How do we know that's his will? Because he told us to do it, right? That's God's revealed will. This is what pleases him. This is what he approves of and how we live. Now, I think Jesus has both kinds of God's will in view here. But let's first think about what it means to pray your will be done in the sense of God's revealed will. When we pray this, we are praying that God's holy law would be obeyed by mankind. That people would do that which is pleasing to God according to his revealed will. Right? We, we, we are praying that the sinful will of human beings would be brought under subjection to the revealed will of God. And naturally, this encompasses believers and unbelievers alike. Right? When it comes to unbelievers, we pray that they would receive a new will and submit to Christ as Lord. Or at the very least, for example, when we pray for our leaders, at the very least, that they would govern in a way that is good and righteous according to the basic principles, right, of morality in God's word. And when it comes to believers, right, we are praying for God's help in doing his will and obeying his commands and living a life pleasing to him. Psalm 119 captures the heart of this petition so well. David wrote, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I, I'm sorry, I don't think David wrote Psalm 119. Forgive me. Uh, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. That's what it means to pray, Lord, help me to do your will. 
And notice how the psalmist understands something. He understands the reality that he does not naturally understand what God's righteous will is, nor naturally desire to obey it fully. So he prays for understanding and for God to incline his heart to obey. Right? We must do the same. Right? We must understand that our obedience to God is in view here. Um, if we are forsaking our will in order that we might live in a manner pleasing to God and conforming to his will, well, that is good. That is right. This is why Paul prays that the Colossians would be filled with all knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1, 9-10. So we ask for His help, both for us and for others, that God's revealed will expressed in His commands would be done. I think this is what Jesus means when he says, on earth as it is in heaven. In, in heaven, the angels obey God's will perfectly. Right? There's no sin among the angels and the hosts of heaven. In heaven, the souls of the elect saints who have gone to be with the Lord no longer struggle with sin or their own human wills. No, in heaven, God's will is kept and obeyed perfectly. We are asking God to help us live more conformed to that reality. But how does this petition address God's hidden will? Well, when we pray, your will be done, what we are really doing is submitting ourselves to the sovereignty of God. There are things that happen in our life that we do not like, right? Sometimes they are very small and convenient things. Sometimes they are great crisis and tragedies. And this petition here speaks to those things in a way. Now, often we make requests, don't we? Lord, give me this job, heal this person, resolve this conflict, please change this situation. Those are all okay things and good things to pray for. But Jesus reminds us that we must also consciously acknowledge that God's will is what shall come to pass. And that if He is indeed our God, that we must submit ourselves to His will. It doesn't mean we can't ask God questions. It doesn't mean we can't wonder why God is doing this. But it does mean that we have hope. Again, theology matters. It is important. If God is sovereign, then the suffering that you and I experience is guaranteed to produce a good result in the end. We may not know what that is, but God has promised that that will occur. Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, is it easy to submit ourselves to God's sovereignty? Not all the time. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes we find ourselves uh, a little bit like Job, right? Um, protesting somewhat. And that is why we must pray this petition. God, help me to submit to your sovereign will. Help me to trust that what you are putting me through now is going to end up with a, with a good result to your glory. Help me to trust your sovereignty. Your will be done. This isn't giving God permission, right? <laughs> this isn't saying, go ahead, God, do whatever you want to do. No, we're conceding to him. We're submitting to him, right? We're, we're realizing that what Romans 8.28 says, that God uh, works all things together for those who are called according to his purpose. He works all things together for good. We're really believing that that is true. 
So we pray, your will be done for the glory of God, giving him the honor he is due as the righteous lawgiver and the sovereign Lord. And these three petitions are the ones that Jesus puts on the table as of highest importance as far as prayer goes. Because prayer is ultimately about God's glory. It is ultimately about Him. And our prayers must reflect that priority. Now that's not to say that if, you know, if you're going through something extremely difficult, sometimes all you can say is, Lord, help me. Right? God can still be glorified in that short prayer. So don't, don't misunderstand what, what I'm saying or what Jesus is doing here. But it's simply the reality. Lord, help me. And in a way, when we pray something as simple and as short as that, we are glorifying God, aren't we? Because we're saying, Lord, I have nothing. I can do nothing. I need you to help. That is glorifying to God. And that is what we are created to do, to glorify God. The first question of the Westminster Catechism uh, for, for our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, right? What is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and glorify him. Right? That's the reason that you and I exist, and our prayers should reflect that too. So if you and I are focusing on ourselves in our prayers more than God's glory, how can we pray correctly? Right? We're going to be all out of whack. We're going to be off base. Right? If, you don't, if you don't calibrate something correctly, right? if you don't calibrate maybe a, a, a measuring instrument correctly, it's going to give you wrong measurements. You're going to be way off in the weeds. Well, God's glory is that thing which calibrates us to pray rightly. And by putting these God-centered petitions at the beginning of our prayers, Jesus is teaching us about what is important, first and foremost, the glory of God. And when we approach prayer that way, we will pray in a much more God-centered way. Again, this doesn't mean we forget about our needs. And in fact, next week we're going to see three petitions addressing our needs. But it does mean that when we pray, right, that we must put God's worship, His kingdom, and His will above all else. Even in our prayers, even our private prayers, God's glory must be our primary goal. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, what a blessing it is to come to you in prayer at any time, in any circumstance, Lord. That is our Heavenly Father, you know what we need before we even ask you. What an assurance it is to know that you will answer our requests to your glory and truly what is best for us. But Lord, we recognize and we confess that sometimes we are far more focused on ourselves than on you. And our prayers are merely a list of, uh, a list of requests devoid of worship. And Father, may that be so no longer. Would you help us to approach you, Lord, with reverence, hallowing your name, and desiring that others would do so in our prayers. Would you help us to approach you consciously desiring your kingdom to be advanced? And Father, would you help us to seek your help in living according to your revealed will and your commands and submitting to your sovereignty, to your hidden will? Father, there is such joy and such peace when we do these things because this is what you've designed us to do. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in accordance with your design, especially when we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.